This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next-generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I'm joined by Harris County Criminal Court Judge-elect Franklin Bynum. Thanks for coming on and congrats on winning your election. Thanks so much, Jordan. Yeah, it's our pleasure. So for starters, could you tell us about what inspired you to run and what your journey was to victory? I have been a criminal lawyer here in Harris County for about 10 years. I've only been a criminal lawyer I never was a prosecutor. And over that time, I saw just like injustices that you wouldn't really believe. Like, I mean, even reading books and even kind of staying up to date about the problems in the system, to see them and to live them every day and to be connected to my clients um, really had a deep effect on me. You know, for a while, I was satisfied that my activism, that my job was enough as far as my activism went. And I never really found a, a group that really suited me anyway. And so, um, you know, along those lines, I was one of the first uh, public defenders in Harris County. We were the largest city in the country without one. So I helped start that office and I, had a, I did capital defense work. And, uh, you know, 2016 came around and, uh, you know, after the election in 2016, it became kind of clear to me that my job wasn't enough, right? That I needed to do more. And so I didn't know what that looks like. And so I went to a DSA meeting, a Democratic Socialist of America meeting here in Houston. And um, that kind of began my journey to um, getting involved in, uh, in more of a more movement work and uh, eventually uh, to kind of just like deciding to run for judge. We went through a lot here in Houston, right? We went through a hurricane I had a particularly bad experience in one of the county courts, right? And the court that I ran for, it's a, it's a county court. So that means it is uh, above a traffic ticket and below a felony. And I had a particularly bad experience. And then I went to a state and local working group meeting. And I kind of just said almost, almost on a lark, like, hey, you know, I think I'll run for judge. You know, I'm just so tired of these people rolling their eyes at me, uh, you know, guffawing at, you know, at me, like pleading for basic due process rights for my clients. And then they, they kind of like gave me a round of applause when I said that. And I was like, oh, this is weird, you know. And then so began kind of a, a journey, right, of uh, standing in front of the jail and uh, getting on the ballot. And then we continued that through the end. I mean, my, my goal from the beginning was not just to like win a political office, but also to, you know, build a movement and uh, build and be part of a larger movement. So, um, I, you know, I didn't want to just like, embed myself in traditional democratic politics, I wanted to go out and try to reach the people that I thought were being reached, right? My clients, their family members. And so almost exclusively my campaigning uh, on the street was in front of the Harris County Jail at visiting hours, talking to people who knew what the problems were and telling them the stark numbers, right? 85% of the people in the jail at any given time, more or less, are there only because they don't have the money to pay to get out. And so, you know, telling people that they're not alone, first of all, that, that you know, it's not just because they can't pay. It's almost everyone that they're there with can't pay. 
And then also that like we hear them, we're working for them, we're trying to do something about it. And also telling them about this huge bail lawsuit that's pending here that the county finally is being held accountable for their years of discriminatory practices. So that's kind of how we did it and how we came to it. And what impact can you make exactly as a judge? A lot. So I would say that uh, about we get about 3,000, 3,500 cases filed a year, and that roughly correlates. I mean, sometimes people have multiple cases, but roughly that's the number of people that pass through the courts a year. My court is one of the 16 courts that hear that level of offense uh, above a traffic ticket below a felony. And you know, an individual decision. I mean, fundamentally, I talk a lot about policies. I talk a lot about historical oppression. I talk a lot about all these different things. And judges do make policy, right? Judges control. I mean, when when a police officer arrests someone, everyone knows, right? It's been this way since time immemorial. You have to take them to see a judge, right? And so the conditions under which they are taken to that judge, that is called, that's what we call the booking system, right? Um, Judges control that system. And in that way, that is the beginning of judges overseeing the police. And oversight of the police is fundamentally one of the most important jobs that judges do. The current crop of judges here, uh, the outgoing crop of Republican judges, would seek and tout the endorsements of law enforcement unions, which I always thought was a conflict of interest, because, or at least just a signal that they weren't running their courts fairly. Because the number one thing they're called upon to do is exercise reasonable oversight of the police. And if they're aligning themselves politically with the police, then I, it's difficult to see how they do that. So how can I make a difference as a judge? Two ways, right? One is making policies, controlling the booking system, saying, hey, we have a policy that, you know, if you, uh, you have to see a judge within X number of hours. And if you don't, then you're released, right? Uh, you have to have certain things provided to you within a certain amount of time. Um, you have to get a certain amount of services, right? Um, that's number one. And even down to encouraging police and the local district attorney to change how they even file the cases, right? Uh, they file the cases with us, the judges, right? And they have the discretion to uh, give basically a citation to the person to come to court rather than chain them and bring them downtown. And a lot of that's unnecessary in a lot of these cases, particularly at the level of court that I'm running for, right? These are minor offenses, driving while licensed invalid, what I call pain assault, where it's assault without a serious bodily injury. It's uh, the, the threshold is, did the person feel pain? And uh, driving while intoxicated on top of that. So, you know, these are important cases, but there are also cases where someone can receive a citation and come to court, right? And the local law enforcement at this point chooses not to do that and has never been pressured to do that. So on a policy level, we can move that direction, right? And on an individual level, I can look at each individual person and look at the range of punishment and take the, the knowledge that I have with 10 years as a defense lawyer and the values that I have, that I uh, have put out there, right? The theme of my campaign was community control of our courts, right? And what I mean by that, what that means is that for two years, I went around the county and I would talk to people about the criminal courts and every single person agreed they were broken. And in fact, many times, many, many times, people would burst out in tears talking about the criminal courts. And, you know, we live in a democracy, you know, or so they tell us. And the courts are supposed to work for us. And so why does everyone hate them so much? Why does everyone feel so oppressed by them? That really needs to end. And so 
you know, I think that my values more accurately reflect the values of the community. Um, criminal courts are a really democratic process. I mean, I think that criminal courts house, courts in general house, one of the last most democratic parts of our society, and that's the jury trial, right? Where individual people with no other qualifications other than the basic age, residency, can come in and make the most important decisions about people's lives. And there's tremendous power in that. And as a judge, I preside over that process too. Individually, I can help people and find the best, the best way forward, right? Um, right now, we live under a regime where people believe the best way forward for people is to suspend their driver's license the maximum they possibly can, to impose the most and most expensive and most restrictive bond and probation conditions possible, and uh, that caging people uh, actually has some type of social benefit or actually has some great, some type of great social benefit, right? And I think that looking, I, I can look at individual cases and say, is caging this person going to do anything productive or not, right? I can consider that full range, but I can also make a decision that I think is in accordance with what our community's values are. Could you talk a little more about those values? You are a democratic socialist. How does that inform your perspective and what exactly does it mean? Being a democratic socialist means that, you know, the, the two parts of it, right? The socialist part means that, you know, I think that our society should be um, basically organized around uh, and, and in a way where we each kind of have control over our own destiny. We have a, a chance at kind of self-fulfillment, self-actualization um, without being, you know, ground uh, into the ground by um, capital, by owners, by you know, people that would um, have us all being task rabbit runners uh, at, for a very low wage. Uh, it's important, too, to understand the criminal courts in the context of them being really... The, the courts are have a lineage that dates back to chattel slavery, right? The criminal courts here in Texas and across the country um, were enforcing fugitive slave laws. They were um, enacting and enforcing brutal Jim Crow laws. And, you know, we never really reckoned with that legacy. And you can walk into a bookstore and you can see all kinds of very popular, very excellent books on the topic. But the follow through as far as action just really hasn't been there. And that's, that's um, what I'm trying to do. So getting back to what socialism is, you know, we can't have criminal courts like this in um, in a functioning society, right? They're too oppressive. They're not representative. And the democratic part means that, you know, we're going to get there in a way that we can all agree on in a majoritarian way. And so, you know, something I said throughout the campaign is that people need care and not cages, right? There are tremendous, tremendous resources spent on my clients in the system to cage them, to cycle them through uh, a series of being chained and released and chained and released and chained and released when a lot of times their basic needs aren't being met, right? Housing, healthcare, these things aren't being provided. Instead, what's being provided is a cage. I think that, you know, as a judge, how can I realize, you know, how can I put democratic socialism in action as a judge? I can, you know, look at someone and understand their individual circumstances informed by my background as a mental health public defender. Uh, I was a mental health public defender in the court that I'm going to take the bench of. And I would say that 
you know, these are poverty courts, right? Almost, I mean, I would say most of the people in these courts um, are there. Uh, you can draw a direct line to the reason they're there uh, to poverty. Not everybody, but definitely most, definitely most. You know, what is the function of a penalty under those circumstances? Um, these are things we ought to consider, I think. And so that is what being, it's, it's taking this system that, that right now takes resources and cages and punishes people, right? And still considering that the system directs me to consider that as an option. And I, you know, have to and I will, but also understanding that how can we take this system and how can we direct resources at the people in my court uh, and even open up resources to people that aren't in the court to, um, you know, make a better society, to make a better world for ourselves. Um, ultimately, I think that, you know, current politics and current politicians really have a massive failure of imagination, you know, that just like, this is the way it always has been. This is the way it always will be. And that's just not true. And it doesn't have to be. So, you know, one example, there's so many examples, but one that's really close to me is that there's this class called uh, BIP, the Batterers Intervention and Prevention Program, right? And I would say the most complicated, most complex cases faced, um, and, and maybe the most serious cases faced by me at this level of court are these um, family violence situations, right? Where people are mired in anger, people are mired in bad feelings with another person, and uh, you see very often that they they are stuck in a cycle of being angry. And so what therapeutic resources are out there to, to help people overcome their anger? You know, living in a, in a patriarchy that teaches uh, men in particular to um, respond uh, with anger when they feel like they're losing control. Um, how do we, how do we, in a, in a really, like in a way that's kind, in a way that is caring about this person, in a way that is that gives people an opportunity to move forward in a healthy way instead of just, you know, injuring them and punishing them and shaming them, right? How do we, uh, how do we get them kind of on the right track, right? In a way that's not coercive and not punitive. And I think that an ideally like uh, a program like that would be open to all kinds of people, right? People even short of, you know, being arrested. If, um, if we could start directing resources to, you know, group therapeutic resources for people that want to like take a look at what is it to be a man in a, in a patriarchy? Like what is it to be, what is it to, to, to be taught to react with anger when, um, when something bad is happening in life, when something stressful is happening in life? You know, people are um, working harder and harder for less. People are, um, conditions are very grim, uh, to be honest, for a lot of people. And I see it in my clients. And it's not just my clients, right? Everyone I know is working harder for less. You know, how do we address these stresses of life um, and, and these really serious problems um, short of coercion and punishment, right? I want to make clear, you know, the law directs me, right? And I definitely will consider all the options, right? In every case. But I think that we, you know, need to create more options and consider more options. So on the left, there's a lot of debate about working in electoral politics, whether it's worthwhile engaging with the system, if it inherently validates 
institutions designed to oppress. What are your thoughts on the dynamic of working both inside and outside the system? To me, you know, obviously I'm, I'm in favor of, of working in electoral politics, but, but with some, some real serious uh, conditions attached, right? I mean, it's like I said at the beginning, I, I don't, I didn't get into this just to win some judicial office, right? There are a lot of like career democratic politicians that, that just cycle through and run for these judge seats around here. And, you know, that certainly is not me and not, not anything I ever saw for myself or want to be. The, my campaign has always been kind of an inside outside kind of thing. I have this experience. I'm board certified in criminal appellate law by the Texas Board of Legal Specialization. I'm a former public defender. I have these skills. And then there's this position that will let me like provide immediate relief to people. Um, I don't really, you know, understand any argument of just like total disengagement with electoral politics. I really like, I, I, I don't understand because it's power. Power is a dangerous thing, right? Power is a problematic thing, but power is a real thing, right? And power is something that, um, you know, people on the left are going to need to take um, if we're not all going to die, you know? So... Um, it's not really a question of whether to get into electoral politics. That question to me is kind of a non-starter. I think the question is, how do we do it, right? The way I did it was uh, organizing, you know, making clear to everyone that it was always part of a larger movement, uh, making it so, right, in every way that I possibly could, connect, making connections to, you know, from the individual race to the larger issues of the day, and also... Um, you know, already being in office, right? I'm seeing the limitations of, of electoral politics, right? If we go to meetings with other agencies and other judges or, or whatever, right? You know, they don't understand an issue or they, they don't want to go so far. Then I think that like people, activists need to know, right? And people need to organize to um, go to the other elected officials that, uh, that maybe are not so in favor of things like the you know, fundamental change of the bail system and and say, look, this is actually what we want. And, uh, you know, our tool to one tool is, is public pressure and demonstrations and campaigns and whatever that looks like. But then another tool, if that person doesn't do uh, what what the community wants them to do is running against them in an election. Right. So it's, it's really not compromising to engage with the electoral system. And in fact, it's a way to to further build and, and grow a movement. It also gives this like, there are all kinds of people, right? I said that I couldn't find a group that, that really worked for me until I found DSA. And one reason that I really love DSA from the beginning, and I still love DSA now, is that DSA is, is what they call multi-tendency, right? It's like, no matter kind of where you're coming from or, or what in particular your issue is, I mean, when I went to my first meeting, you know, looking to my right, here's a you know, I'm a marijuana, single issue marijuana activist. Great. Nice to meet you. You know, to my left, I'm a, you know, long time, 30 year, go back to Michael Harrington, social Democrat. Okay, great. Nice to meet you. Can we like get in the streets and campaign for a higher minimum wage? Can we do, can we agree on these things and move forward together? And, um, you know, I think that engaging with electoral politics brings, uh, kind of brings, the people that are interested in that kind of thing in and maybe makes them part of a larger movement uh, too. So I, I think that the, the benefits just like 
so far outweigh the drawbacks. And you do have to guard against the dangers and the drawbacks. Of course, I, of course I have to. But um, just the idea of just like not engaging at all just really is a non-starter to me. I see my clients suffering every day. I'm just not going to sit around and wait for a perfect world to come along. I'm going to engage in the world as it is and try to make a material change today. And what are you doing? What steps are you taking to ensure that you stay connected with activists and the DSA? I still, I mean, it's so important to stay connected, right? Going to meetings, going to community groups, and it's not just DSA, right? I mean, I go to DSA meetings still. I go to all kinds of community group meetings now. And I get invited to more community meetings now that I'm a judge, and I love it. And it's a chance for me to speak to people that I would not have had a chance to speak to before. It's, there's something really different talking to someone saying, hey, I'm Franklin Bynum. I'm a socialist organizer, you know, doing block walking. You know, do you want to come to a DSA meeting? Uh, as opposed to, hi, I'm Franklin Bynum. I'm your county criminal court at law number eight judge. Uh, it's an honor to serve you. Here's what I'm about, right? I'm about not jailing people because they're poor. I'm about providing services to people instead of um, penalties in appropriate cases. It's just a different reaction from people. And, you know, they're both good reactions, right? And it's not that one is better than the other. It's just that what I'm doing now is a little different. And I like it. And other people are still doing what they're doing and staying connected with the groups in the same way that I always have. I'm going to get all kinds of, you know, invitations with swirly letters and come to this gala or that. I call it gala poisoning. You know, me personally, I'm just fundamentally not interested in that. And I think that, that it would behoove us on the left to find people who are not, you know, who are not so going to be taken with, with that kind of thing. In my community of criminal lawyers, we call it black robe disease. You know, that uh, you just, you become a judge and you lose touch with all reality and just become this, this oppressive jerk. Uh, to, to make it a more kind of contemporary reference that I've really enjoyed this week, uh, I love comic books. The uh, I got my loner robe this week. Uh, I like ordered a robe. And it's so funny because it's a small market for robes, right? For judicial robes. And I, so I found like the one like 90s era storefront uh, for the, what seemed to be like the best robe outlet. But it, mine won't be ready in time. And they sent me a loner. So my loner got here and I put it on. And I had this feeling that it was like the symbiote black costume in Spider-Man, you know? It's like, oh, wow, there's so much power with this. And I can do this, you know? But then it just like takes over your life and you become a monster. There are two things to guard against, right? One is becoming isolated and one is becoming kind of, uh, kind of drunk with power, right? And I think that, you know, cultivating a practice of of staving off both is just important to, to anyone. Uh, I ask people, you know, I have a group of friends and I'm, I'm like, will you like keep me in check? Will you like, you know, if you see me veering off course, like I'm expecting you to say something. Um, that's part of what accountability looks like. And also just like showing up and talking to people in groups still and doing it a lot more. Hey everyone, I'm Nathan. And I'm Dylan. And as you know, Millennial Politics is totally independent and volunteer run. That means every podcast you listen to, every article you read, and every tweet you see is created by a dedicated team of volunteers. It also means that we can say what we want to say when we want to say it, but we rely on listeners just like you to support our work. We hope you'll consider supporting us by subscribing at patreon.com slash millenpolitics. Every dollar will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates 
causes and organizations. And if you subscribe at the ambassador level or more, we'll send you a free copy of How Our Government Really Works Despite What They Say. It's an award-winning book about the intricacies of American government, and you'll get to join our exclusive ambassador Slack channel and get to hang out with us all day, every day. I pretty much live there, so if that appeals to you, come join us. And we want to give a very special shout out to our executive producer, Greg Stevens, and our producers, Brad Tracy and Renee Garcia-Brown. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics. That's patreon.com slash M-I-L-L-E-N politics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show. And looking at some specific proposals, though it's not a national DSA position, there are a lot of DSA members who do support abolishing the police and prisons. What are your thoughts on this? I call myself a prison abolitionist. The term that I prefer is just abolitionist, right? Because it, it, to me, like I said, these courts have a legacy dating back to chattel slavery. I think that the prison abolition movement, the abolition movement dates back to then too. In so many ways, the practices that I'm going in to confront in the criminal courts are holdovers of that time. And the practices have morphed very much over time, but fundamentally, um, they're the same, right? And the, the tools of it are the same, right? Chains, cages. If you look at um, the numbers in the system of who's targeted, you know, the numbers are overwhelmingly discriminatory. So yeah, I am an abolitionist. And yet, I am working within a system that I call oppressive, right? And I'm, I'm taking power within that system. And yeah, that is a dissonant kind of thing. I cannot accomplish prison abolition as a judge. Cannot. Um, what I can do is go into the system as it is, go into the system even with the constraints that I have and begin doing the very difficult work that's going to take a long time of changing these practices, of peeling back these, this system and um, you know, making a material difference now and then letting people um, who would come after me build on that. So for example, bail. Bail reform is the number one issue really across the country in the criminal system and, and certainly here. We have a huge lawsuit pending and, and uh, you know, I campaigned on it a lot. If you look at the gains that are to be accomplished um, with bail reform, Judges right now just make up a number, right? They're like $3,000, $5,000, $10,000, $35,000 for misdemeanors, believe it or not. Like, and the person generally has to, if they want to get out, uh, pay a private bonding company 10% of that. That's real money being sucked out of our communities. And it doesn't have to be so, right? Um Cycling people through jail over and over, people with, let's say, people with mental illnesses, right, that I represented a lot as a mental health public defender and then as a lawyer taking appointments, um, is, is just a tremendous human loss. And so stopping that suffering now, letting people uh, build up their lives, their savings, their, um, their, their health is something that we can build on to... Uh, make a better world to, to accomplish the further goals that, that we seek out and the goals that I talk about. And I plan on going to the Texas legislature and saying, hey, uh, I'm a judge, right? Are you considering, say, decriminalizing uh, marijuana or making marijuana, taking it out of the level of my court and putting it down to traffic ticket level? 
um, hi, I'm a judge and I support that. Please, like, you're clogging the docket with your weed cases. And please, like, kick it down. I think it would be a good idea from, like, a, from that, you know, because that's, that's the perspective that they are interested in as, as being legislators, right? Um, I'll do that alongside other, other activists that have um, all kinds of, of moral and other arguments that they can make, too. It's not something that's going to happen overnight. And I think that getting in and, and uh, working towards the goals uh, is doing the work of it. It's, not always, it's, it's, it's a messy thing, right? And uh, it's, it's like we said before about staying accountable. Um, I, I always, you know, being an abolitionist is a good way of keeping accountable, right? And saying, how today am I approaching these problems in a way that is not continuing past injustices or creating new ones? And how can we move towards a better world using the tools that I have in front of me today? And what advice would you give to young leftist, democratic, socialist, abolitionists who are interested in running for public office like yourself, but struggle with the questions of their electability and whether it's appropriate for them to join this system? There are so many, and Texas is, is an extraordinary example, because I think here in Harris County, we have the longest ballot in the country. We have all kinds of positions that are elected positions. The, we elect the clerk. That's the case across the country in many places. But we elect two clerks locally. We elect a tax assessor collector, which actually also is the voter registrar. Hugely important position. Talking about building on gains, for years that tax assessor position, who just mans these offices and does vehicle registration and tax bills and things, but also does the voter registration. When the Republicans controlled that office, they would not frequently hold trainings to deputize voter registrars. Well, when the Democrats came in the first time, they started doing it more and more, right, out in communities, out in communities that were uh, underserved, that were undervoting, right, that were underrepresented. We can build on things like that. I would say that there's so many offices, right, and, there, and I would say look at your individual expertise. It just so happens that I have this expertise, right, that I got into this criminal system and that all of these issues kind of came to a head at this time and place, you know, I mean, I'm I've called it before, like I'm, I'm surfing this wave of history, you know, that like all these things kind of came together at once. And I was just like, well, all right, I guess I ought to do this. I know how, I know what. And, uh, and so I did. Look at your individual experience. There's so many school board positions, um, so many different positions where you can make a difference. It doesn't have to be like Congress, you know, God forbid. Look to your experience, look to your passion and see if there's a fit locally, you know, I mean, run for, you know, run for or try to angle into your local housing department, if you're into housing, your local animal control department, there's huge, huge things to be done in all of these places that are going to have an impact just in the world, uh, in the sphere of the office, but also in the larger kind of collective effort to make a better world. And, and also, I would say that, like, don't be afraid of being yourself right? The most powerful thing is to be yourself. It's easier said than done. One way to do it that was critically important to me was to have a base of support, to have a base of power, right? So for me, um, I started in DSA and I knew that if I ran for office that I would have the support of dozens of people. And in a local political campaign, local electoral campaign, that's a lot of help, right? 
That's way more help than anybody uh, at the level I was running for was getting. And even I would say most other candidates, period, locally for countywide office. It's if you start with um, a base of support, that's so important. And it also gives the space to be yourself. I mean, I was able to go into the local Democratic Party and they told me, I said, look, this to me is the problem of our time. Um, we have some of the worst officials in county government. They're, being, they're losing a lawsuit badly in federal court. They're spending millions of dollars of public money to do it. I want to get out in public and, and, and show the county what is happening here. And the local Democratic Party in a closed door meeting with like three of them said, no, we don't want to do that. Um, we want you to go to the Lions Club and the Rotary Club and to softball games. And we want you to give a non-political message to non-political groups, just saying, we're Democrats, we're here, please go vote for us. And I said, no, like, absolutely not. Like, I'm not going to throw my life away with your bad ideas. And really what gave me the space to do that was knowing that I was not alone. And so definitely don't do it alone. Definitely build a base of power yourself. Find a base of power somewhere else. It's something we have to do together, you know. The, the one complaint, you know, I mean, I, people complain about electoral politics and, and the one complaint that I actually like really resonates deeply with me about electoral politics is uh, that there's so much work from so many people that go into it. It's my name on the shirt. You know, it's my name on the bumper sticker. It's this, it's this personality thing. And it is true that, you know, ultimately I'm accountable, right? And, and there's a reason for that. There's a reason why there's a name there, right? There, it's not the, the only way to do it, but that is the way it's set up at the moment in this particular way. And so that really is fundamentally unfair. And so whenever I can, I try to credit everybody around me who's doing it. And, you know, consider this too. All of these positions, right? This is something that um, Republicans in Texas um, do very well and have done for some time. Run people for local offices, um, hire staff uh, from, from those ranks, right? And build kind of like a bench of politically active, politically involved activists who, you know, can, can kind of like staff the movement that they're a part of, right? And we should be doing the same thing. Um, you know, here, you know, we have so many elected judicial offices in Texas and Republicans for years have been stocking it with their bench, right? Um, John Cornyn, who's a senator, was a judge. Greg Abbott, who's the governor of Texas, was a judge. Uh, Louis Gohmert, one of the most comically reactionary uh, members of Congress, was a judge. Um, and, you know, we should be doing that, too. We should be running for all kinds of things. And, um, you know, I think that I am an example of, of how to do that, and I'm going to go around the state and the country encouraging people to do the same. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast today and sharing your story. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. And we'd love to get you on again in the future. Sure. Yeah, I'll give you a status update and I'll let you know how it's going. That's a way of staying accountable. Yeah, perfect. So lastly, to our listeners, make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, and tune into the Progressive Radio Network every week at 8pm Eastern to hear our newest episodes. Thanks for listening.